Welcome once again to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. And I do believe that that is a safe bet for the winter because uh, unfortunately COVID has not left us and uh, is projected to unfortunately lead to a lot of deaths this winter because even though the administration rolled out the new vaccine, literally they have had no fanfare about it whatsoever. Um, I was watching a YouTuber the other day who, you know, is a person who watches the news, is someone who's very well informed. And she said, literally, she had not even heard about the fact that she could get uh, this new booster. And so, yeah. As always, of course, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Just a small reminder that this is our pledge uh, week. And so if you could do a donation to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, if you like what you hear, then please help support us. Thanks so much. Now, I don't want to start tonight by saying happy Veterans Day. That just seems weird. But I do want to give a moment to acknowledge the sacrifice that many people, men, women, non-binary people, have given for our country. Even those who deeply disagree with me and probably hate everything I stand for, I still respect their service. And uh, I think it's important to try and remember to separate the soldier from the policies and conflicts they are forced to engage in. The armed services continues to be an unfortunately enticing option for many who do not have a place that we do not have a place for in greater society and those who wish to have a better life through the programs available through service. And so a lot of people who should be able to get, um, you know, jobs in uh, things that we no longer value as much as we used to, uh, people who used to work with their hands, people who um, did various things that just aren't available anymore. And so those people aren't necessarily interested uh, or have the capacity to go to college. And so the armed services is a great way for, uh, you know, people who don't have a lot of other options to be able to get a career and have some stability. And they make a cost-benefit ratio about it that doesn't always work out in their favorite favor. And... So, you know, obviously that's not everyone. Plenty of people who, um, you know, there are plenty of people who go into the armed forces who want to do that and that it's, you know, their specific choice. And, you know, there's a reason that there are ROTC programs at colleges across the country and things like that. Um, so I don't want to paint it with such a broad brush, but that is still a lot of people are people who go into the military because they don't see a lot of other options for themselves. 
And so one of the things that we really need to do is to continue to push for better services for veterans. That's what we can do to honor veterans, including mental and physical health, especially mental health. We still do not uh, focus enough on the mental health of um, veterans. And we need to make sure that veterans are never unhoused after leaving service. Uh, not everybody who says they're former military necessarily is when talking about the unhoused, but plenty are. And that's not okay. That's not okay. I mean, it's not okay that anyone is unhoused, but especially people who have put themselves on the line for the defense of our country, even when we're mostly not in any danger, they still did it. And there's still people who end up dying in accidents and in small incursions and things like that. And so it's important to honor and respect those people and take care of them. Um, that's one of the things that frustrates me most about this country is that we pay a lot of lip service to veterans, uh, especially those on the right. And then they consistently vote against any kind of support for veterans, for expanding mental health, uh, expanding health, expanding, uh, you know, post, um, retirement benefits for, uh, soldiers and veterans. And it's just, it's, it's very frustrating. So, um, yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to acknowledge it and talk about it for a minute because I think it's important. And so I want to move on now, obviously. And we're going to start with a pair of stories about some of our favorite animals. Now, just another quick aside, uh, thinking of animals, I do apologize for missing last week's show, but I ended up needing to take my cat to the emergency vet in Connecticut on both Thursday and on Friday. Luckily, he seems to be fine, but it definitely took a lot out of me. Um, another, you know, shout out to people who work in pet hospitals and in, you know, people hospitals as well, because... Oh, the emotional labor there. I just can't imagine being able to handle that. That would be really, really hard for me. So shout out to all of the people who work in care as well and who work in care for the military. Okay, so let's really move on now and get into the stories for the evening. Tonight's first stories are about octopus and crows. So first, we're going to talk about throwing behavior in octopus. Now, you may have heard about this because it was pretty much in every single major uh, news site for science uh, news because it's so much fun and octopus are so great that everybody loves them because they should, because octopuses should be uh, the next overlords of the uh, world if they didn't, you know, have such short lifespans. Anywho, researchers have added throwing to the long list of things that octopus are known for doing. Now, as you most certainly know, octopus are highly intelligent and do lots of amazing things. They're expert escape artists, they're tool users, and they're also mimics, among a whole range of other things. Um, I always bring up my favorite example, which is, of course, the 
uh, German octopus that used to get bored and start juggling the hermit crabs that lived with him. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And now they may throw things when they're grumpy or just not in the mood to deal with other people or octopus, I should say. In Australia, there is an area where octopus live in much closer proximity to one another than usual. Most octopus are solitary animals, only coming together to mate briefly. Due to their unusual nature, the areas in the southern part of Jervis Bay in New South Wales, Australia, has been dubbed. Uh, there's actually two distinct places. So one of them is called Octopolis, the other Octolantis. And so, yeah, the the octopus there are, they live in much closer uh, living quarters than other octopus. There must just been, be a lot of prey to go around in that area, which, you know, it's nice to see that there's still places that have a lot of prey to go around. And so researchers studying this population have noticed that the octopus sometimes threw shells, and so they decided to look into it further. The team took video and found octopus gathering silt, shells, or algae in order to throw debris at other octopus. At least that's how it looks. Now, it's important to always have caveats when talking about animal behavior and to be careful of anthropomorphizing, as I have already clearly done um, in the introduction to this uh, research. But honestly, watching the video they supplied, uh, it sure seems like the one octopus is deliberately telling the other octopus to leave it alone with a jet of silty water. Um, there's another video where they, the one octopus throws a shell, but doesn't throw it directly at the other octopus. And it might just be a uh, case of the other octopus came at a time when it was cleaning out its den. That one's not as clear cut. But the first video, it certainly looks like the one octopus is saying, please leave me alone. Now, few animals are known to engage in deliberate throwing behavior. This is, according to the paper published recently in the journal PLOS One, the ballistic motion of a manipulatable object or material, where ballistic describes free motion with momentum. And so aiming is even rarer. This is observed in chimps, capuchins, elephants, mongoose, and birds. In addition, uh, spiders sometimes use silk threads to flick or swipe at perceived threats or prey, while the archer fish squirts water at their prey. Now, if you haven't watched a video of an archer fish, who I believe also live in Australia, I highly recommend it. It's pretty amazing. They have evolved the ability to compensate for the refractive index of water in order to aim for their prey above the waves. And so it's pretty amazing. I definitely recommend looking for a video on that. Now, of course, there is one other example, sharing the ocean, uh, which is dolphins. They are known to toss objects both in play and in order to kill prey. I recommend not looking for videos of that if you don't want dolphins to haunt your nightmares. Um, yeah, if you ever want to uh, 
despair of something that you once thought was cute and cuddly in a sense. Uh, never just, ooh, uh, dolphins are a lot. Dolphins are way too much like humans. Uh, it's, it's a little scary. Uh, they are, I think, much more like humans in some ways than chimps are. Um, though chimps are also pretty close and have some of the same kinds of behaviors, but, uh, both of them could give us a run for our money, uh, in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it might be that dolphins are the next, uh, overlords of the earth. <laughs> And so the authors consider this an act of tool use, which is, again, not surprising given the fact that octopus have been known to use tools, uh, coconut shells, uh, bottles found on the ocean floor, all sorts of things. They use them, um, and it's especially true in social settings. And so it might be indicative of communication, social bonding, or aggressiveness. Now, the octopus in this area of Australia are as close to social as octopus get. New research has found octopus that can show tolerance toward others of their species and even use signaling to communicate to others, which is something we really hadn't seen before. The octopus in the current study are colloquially referred to as gloomy octopus. They are octopus tetricus. And uh, so these recordings come from 2015 and 2016 using underwater video cameras. The team sifted through the footage of to look for the debris-throwing behavior. I call it Octopus TV, co-author David Scheel, a behavioral ecologist at Alaska Pacific University, told Nature. The 2014, the 2015 data was stronger with better water clarity and numbers of octopus, several of which could be identified by various unique body markings, such as scars or unique patterns in their natural markings. The team was able to observe around 10 octopus and found 102 examples of debris throwing behavior within 24 hours of footage that, uh, was extracted from several days of filming. Both sexes were shown to engage in throwing, but the majority, 66%, were female. Around half were indicative of interactions between different individuals, and around 17% of the throws ended in the individual being hit with the debris. Rather than using an arm, the octopus used their siphon. Using a jet of water rapidly through a specifically aligned siphon to launch the gathered debris, even occasionally over a distance of several body lengths. We weren't able to try and assess what the reasons might be, Shiel cautioned, but throwing, he said, might help these animals deal with the fact that there are so many octopuses around. The researchers did note, however, that the octopus that engaged in more vigorous throwing, mostly of silt, when confronted with other octopus, and that the most forceful and best-aimed animals tended to show dark coloration, a common sign of aggression in the octopus. In addition, the targets often ducked or raised an arm, seemingly in defense. Even if no intention to hit other octopuses lies behind these throws, they do have social effects in interactions between individuals at the site, the authors concluded. 
Octopuses can definitely be added to the short list of animals that throw or propel objects and provisionally added to the shorter list of those who direct their throws at other animals. If they are indeed targeted, these throws are directed at individuals of the same population, and octopuses then join a small collection of social mammals in this rare form of non-throwing, of non-human throwing. So chalk another complex behavior up on the board for octopus. And again, I think we should all be lucky that they have surprisingly short lives and have to breathe water. Or again, they might end up being our overlords. Let's move on now to the chalkboard for crows. We already know that they use tools, hold intergenerational grudges, understand the concept of zero and other impressive feats. Now a new study suggests that they can understand the complex cognitive principle of recursion better than monkeys and in line with small children. And they've once again proven that they can do something once thought to be the sole purview of humans. Recursion is the cognitive capacity to embed an element structure within others of the same kind and has often been claimed as one of the key features of human symbolic competence, the authors write. One of the most distinguishing features of human communicative cognition may turn out not to be that human-specific after all, lead author Diane A. Liao a postdoctoral candidate at the University of Tübingen in Germany told Live Science in an email. Now, a classic example of incursion, uh, or recursion, I should say, is the mouse the cat chased ran. Here, the clause the cat chased is embedded within the clause the mouse ran. An initial paper in 2020 was published in Science Advances and featured both adults living in the U.S. as well as members of isolated Amazonian tribes, along with both children and rhesus monkeys, all of whom were able to grasp basic recursion. This new paper, also published in Science Advances, takes it a further step and tested crows. The study is well-designed and executed, and the results are clear and compelling, said Stephen Faringo, an assistant professor in the psychology department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and lead author of the 2020 paper. Liao and her colleagues began by teaching two crows to identify the symbols, uh, curly brackets or braces, square brackets, and angled brackets, or the less than or equal to signs uh, that you see in math. They trained the birds by giving them treats only when the birds pecked in the order of a center-embedded recursive sequence, such as curly brackets, parentheses, closed parentheses, closed curly brackets, or parentheses, curly brackets, closed curly brackets, close parentheses. It's hard to talk about this when we're talking about symbols, I apologize. It took the birds around a week to learn the sequence properly. They were then given a test with a new sequence of symbols, curly brackets and square brackets. Previous subjects had been able to infer that if curly brackets, brackets, curly brackets, 
is correct, then curly brackets, square brackets, square brackets, curly brackets. Um, I missed a bracket in the last sequence. Sorry about that. Or square brackets, curly brackets, curly brackets, square brackets is also correct. The crows did so well on this that they outperformed the monkeys. Adult humans selected a center embedded structure between 60 and 90% of the time. Children had a 43% rate, while monkeys had a 26% success rate. The crows managed a 40% success rate. This suggests that the ability to recognize recursive patterns did not originate with language development. The finding that non-linguistic animals, both monkeys and crows, can represent these complex sequences suggests that this ability may have evolved outside of the language domain, Faringo said, or it could be a more fundamental component of communication. If corvid songbirds can understand and produce recursive structures, they may also use it for vocal communication and managing their intricate social relationships, Liao said. So again, crows are uh, chalking up many amazing feats just like the octopus. Okay, we are now going to move on to a cool discovery in a museum. Longtime listeners will know that I'm fascinated by the fact that there are so many things hidden in museums that have yet to be discovered. Curators at the Cincinnati Art Museum shined a light, both figuratively and literally, on an object in their collection and found a hidden surprise. Hu Mei Sung, a curator of the East Asian Art Collection, was looking through one of the archives while doing research on so-called magic mirrors. These are metal mirrors, typically from China or Japan, which when viewed in a particular light, reveal images that are projected from their reflective surfaces. Sung realized that the small mirror, less than nine inches in diameter and affixed with bright red rope, resembled mirrors made during Japan's Edo period between 1603 and 1867. Though smaller than other examples she'd seen in other collections, she thought it looked very similar and dated from the correct period, the 15th or 16th century, she told CNN. The mirror had been sitting on a shelf away from public view for more than five years before Sung and a colleague began to examine it. I asked her to shine a strong, focused light on the mirror, Sung told CNN. So she used her cell phone and it worked. They weren't able to make out the image, but they could tell that there was indeed an image. They then found a brighter light and revealed the image of a seated Buddha with beams of light emanating from him. The back of the mirror is in fact inscribed with the word Amutaba, a reference to the Buddha of eternal life and one of the five cosmic Buddhas of esoteric Buddhism. This is a rare find. Sung is aware of only three other such magic mirrors with Buddhist imagery found in Western collections. One at the Met is from the 19th century and depicts the Buddha Amida. The mirrors were first manufactured in China 
and then spread to Japan in much the same way that Buddhism did. They were used for both religious and secular purposes. We were so excited, Sung said, no matter how much you can explain theoretically, it all depends on the master who polishes the surface, which is tremendously difficult. That's why they are so rare. The next step is to further research the origins of the mirror, which is now on display as part of the museum's collection. And I believe they actually set up a light to uh, be able to shine on it properly in a way that it was able to be seen by people who come to the museum. And so, yeah, it's it's a pretty huge feat that they were able to do that. It really is something that is uh, sort of sufficiently advanced uh, technology as to be almost magical. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to take a break and we're actually going to go back and talk about a different magic mirror. Um, but I do want to take a break and talk about the uh, studio and the uh, radio station. And obviously it is the end of our fun drive week. And if you are able, it is really helpful. Um, we have matching grants coming in, uh, once again from the wonderful, uh, David Dow, um, Remembrance Foundation, basically. And, uh, so every unique donor, uh, that will be $10 pledged. And, um, there will also be matching donations up to a certain point. And so, yeah, this is really important to our ability to continue to have the station be available to people for, uh, otherwise free. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot of, um, even just backers, uh, we have some underwriters, but for the most part, our entire year is funded by our two fund drives because we have such an amazing community that steps up and helps us out. And, um, you know, it's really great to have the matching funds. Uh, I knew David Dow personally, and he was a great guy. And he, um, you know, was very quiet, wasn't a, uh, extrovert, but, uh, his brother was doing the radio, uh, program here on VFR and he started listening and he really got into it and he really loved this station. Um, and unfortunately he did pass away, um, from cancer, but, uh, he is missed and he is also remembered each time uh, we do this. And so I think that part of this for me is keeping his spirit and his uh, love of radio alive. And so, yeah, if you have a few dollars to spare, again, even if you only have a couple of dollars, that's going to be magnified uh, both by an individual donor grant and by matching funds. And so it's 
really important uh, to us to have people be able to support us during these two fun drives. I know that uh, having to listen to people do fun drives can be kind of a drag. Um, I know it always uh, gets me a little down when it's that time on NPR, but, um, you know, it is the way that we keep the lights on and the signal going and the way that we are able to continue to bring you all sorts of interesting programs, including, well, mine. Um, and so, yeah, if you are able to, please go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And that is the easiest and uh, best way to do it. So you can just go right to uh, the website, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And, um, you know, whatever you can do, a couple dollars, it's still going to go a long way. Um, and so, yeah, uh, thank you for listening as always. And um, we're going to take a short break now and do some PSAs and some show promos. And when we come back, uh, we will talk about a different magic mirror. So stay tuned for that. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. 
In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And again, if you can donate, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, that would be amazing. All right. So this mirror that we're going to be talking about belonged to the 16th century courtier and occultist John Dee. Now, John Dee was a very interesting man about whom an entire series of episodes could be devoted. But what we're concerned about tonight is the fact that he was, in fact, deeply interested in the occult and thus had this amazing uh, magic mirror. Now, Dee's mirror was not metal, but rather polished obsidian. And a new examination of the mirror done last year found that Dee's precious magic mirror originated in the Aztec Empire. While there were no origin documents about the mirror, geochemical analysis enabled researchers to trace the origin of the volcanic glass to Pachuca, Mexico, which was a known source of obsidian for the Aztecs. This confirms that the object was not a copy made using European obsidian, but was most likely acquired by D after it was transported from Mexico, or basically after it was stolen uh, or claimed as tribute by conquistadors and then ended up in Europe unfortunately. The mirror is now in the collection of the British Museum in London, where lots of things that don't belong to uh, (laughs) them belong. Um, And, you know, again, we could do an entire series of uh, podcasts on the ethics of museum collecting and um, of the British Museum's particular prechant for being against uh, returning anything Uh, There was a story recently uh, where Egypt is once again saying, give us the Rosetta Stone back. It belongs to Egypt. It doesn't belong to you. Give it back. Uh, And of course, there's also the Elgin Marbles, which (sighs) we're not going to talk about that tonight because I'm just going to get annoyed. Anyways, the mirror is quite amazing. It is fine polished on both sides. The mirror is also nearly perfectly circular and measures around 7.2 inches in diameter and around a half an inch thick. The mirror also has a small perforated square tab at the top, which might have once been used to attach a handle. Notes kept with the mirror refer to it as the devil's looking glass and the black stone into which Dr. D used to call his spirits, according to the British Museum. Drawings of mirrors similar to D's are found in the Codex Tepetlaustok, a 16th century Aztec pictorial manuscript created by scribes living in Tepetlaustok, and depicts the amount of tribute demanded 
by Spanish conquistadors, as well as outlining other abuses endured by the Aztec people. Now, the Aztecs would have used the mirror for scrying and also for religious rituals. They were tied to the god Tishkla or smoking mirror in the Nahuatl language. I am sure that I am at least slightly mis, uh, <laughs> um, not saying those particularly right. Um, mispronouncing, that is what I'm looking for. Oof. Um, and so this was a creation deity and fittingly a god of sorcerers. In the period iconography, he's often showed with a severed left foot, and he's got an obsidian mirror in place of his left foot, said lead study author Stuart Campbell, a professor of Near Eastern archaeology at the University of Manchester in the UK. Sometimes they appear on his chest. Sometimes they appear on his head, Campbell told Live Science. Though there's quite a specific association with these types of mirrors and that particular deity. In order to confirm the origins of the mirror, Dee's mirror and other related objects, including one rectangular obsidian mirror and two circular ones, were examined using a portable X-ray fluorescence instrument. They then used the ratios of elements such as iron, titanium, and rubidium with those of obsidian mined from various parts of Mexico. Because obsidian only occurs in very specific volcanic locations, it's almost got, always got a distinct chemical profile, Campbell explained. If you do a detailed chemical analysis, very often you can use that to assign it to a unique original source. The analysis showed that both D's and another similar circular mirror were close matches to obsidians from Pachuca, which was heavily mined by the Aztecs. At the beginning of the 16th century, obsidian mirrors had a, spe had a specific cultural context, with a set of very specific cultural meanings in the Aztec Empire, Campbell says. When colonizers seized the mirrors and brought them back to Europe, they actually transferred their meaning as well. After Dee acquired his mirror and began using it for magical rituals, it gained a whole new life and a whole new set of meetings, and it's continued to acquire those, Campbell said. So it now sits in the British Museum as an occult artifact. It's got its own biography and its own impact in the world. I think because of that, it's a particularly fascinating object. Okay, so magic mirrors, they're pretty cool. Um, and both of them are, you know, based on different scientific principles, um, being able to polish obsidian like that is also a pretty, uh, large, uh, bit of craftsmanship. Um, probably a larger amount of craftsmanship, uh, than a lot of other things. And, um, yeah, <sighs> I hope that you are enjoying, uh, listening to me tonight, uh, or whenever you are listening. And if you are, I would really appreciate it if you would, uh, help us out, help the station out by, uh, giving us a small donation or a large donation. If you really want, we will not say no, 
at valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And so, yeah, I've been doing this for a lot of years now and I really appreciate the station and I really appreciate, uh, the other programs that are on, uh, that give us, you know, voices that wouldn't normally be heard. And that's a big thing. Um, yes, people can do podcasting. Yes, people can do other things like that. But, uh, radio is still something that is important. You know, you don't need to have a computer. You don't need to have a smartphone. You just need to have a, you know, $20 radio, a $10 radio, and you can still hear, um, you know, a whole variety of things. And I think that's, that's something worth, uh, making sure, uh, it sticks around. So again, uh, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. All right. So let's move on from one reflective surface to another, this time water. Archaeologists in Egypt were excavating beneath a temple in the ancient city of Taposiris Magna, west of Alexandria, when they found a 4,281-foot-long tunnel that would have once brought water to tens of thousands of people in the ancient city. The tunnel was discovered by an Egyptian Dominican Republic archaeological team, according to the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism. Ancient Egyptian builders, by themselves and with no help from aliens, thank you very much, built the 6.6-foot-high tunnel at a depth of 65 feet below the ground, according to Kathleen Martinez, a Dominican archaeologist and director of the team that discovered the tunnel. It is an exact replica of Eupolinos, of the Eupolinos Tunnel in Greece, which is considered as one of the most important engineering achievements of antiquity, Martinez said. The Eupolinos Tunnel is on the island of Samos and was also used for carrying water. Now, the area itself presents a bit of a challenge for archaeologists, though they continue to excavate there. Parts of the site are submerged underwater at this point, and the area has been hit by many an earthquake over the uh, centuries, and so uh, there has been extensive damage. Now, it's actually unsurprising that the tunnel would be a copy of a Greek design, however, because it dates from the time of the Ptolemaic dynasty, which would have spanned between 304 BC to 30 BC. And this was when Egypt was ruled over by descendants of Ptolemy, one of Alexander the Great's generals. Finds in the tunnel include two alabaster heads, coins, and the remains of statues of Egyptian deities. The alabaster heads most likely represent a king and another high-ranking person. Now, at the time the tunnel was bringing water to the city, it had a population between 15,000 and 2,000 people. To put that in perspective, the population of Greenfield, Mass. in 2020 was less than 17,500. And this would have been... Uh, between 15 and 20 would have been just below the population of London in 1000 AD, which was said to be 20 to 25,000 people. So, you know, not a huge city, but definitely uh, there were lots of people 
uh, there and they were doing a lot of, uh, they were doing a lot of city type things. (laughs) Um, so yeah. And it's really amazing. Again, we always, uh, talk about on this show and I always like to make sure that I talk about it. The fact that, you know, people in ancient times lived just the way that we do. They lived in cities. They did monumental architecture, like, uh, things that are equivalent to the interstate highways, uh, equivalent to, uh, sewer systems that we have. And if you, are local and in uh, Western Mass, you will know that uh, right now there's a lot of public works going on. <laughs> uh, we may no longer be building uh, public uh, temples, but we are still building things like sewer systems uh, and uh water piping that does exactly the same thing that this tunnel did, bringing water to people from a specific place in order for them to be able to do everything that they need to do in life. And so they are definitely not so different from um, the same people today. And if you, I always like to say, and it's think it's completely true that if you were able to take a time machine and um, were able to take a baby and bring them into the present world and raise them, they would be completely normal. You would never be able to know that they had been born in ancient times because people in ancient times simply did not have the same amount of uh, knowledge that we have. They just didn't have the cumulative knowledge that we have now. And that's pretty much the only difference between them and us. Now, the temple being excavated was dedicated to the god Osiris and Isis, his wife, both of whom were associated with the underworld, uh, which is both uh, interesting for the temple and also uh, kind of fitting since this was an underground tunnel. Um, and that was another thing. It might have been doing double duty because they're in Egyptian um Rites of the Dead, there is a whole thing about traveling on the water to get to the underworld. And so it might have been, uh, you know, it might have been a coincidence that it was under the temple, but it might have also been specifically uh, placed there for ritualistic reasons. Um, so that's also really interesting. And so previously at the site, coins with the face of Cleopatra VII, yes, that Cleopatra, the last pharaoh and the last of the Ptolemaic pharaohs, uh, have been found at the site. And so there's really something interesting about looking at uh, the face of Cleopatra on those coins because she does not strike you as a remarkable beauty. And interestingly, descriptions of her from ancient times suggest that she was not, in fact, a great beauty. Rather, she possessed a captivating presence and an impressive intellect. And so uh, it was only later that she was turned into a supposed Hellenistic beauty. So, uh, you know, for all of those 
uh, people out there uh, worrying about unrealistic beauty standards and thinking about uh, people like Cleopatra, she actually uh, was not that necessarily that pretty uh, it, by either uh, ancient or modern standards. Um, you can see uh, she seems to have kind of a uh, prominent chin and a bit of a hooked nose. And, um, you know, part of that is that, um, you know, coins are a very small, uh, they're a very small canvas. So, you know, you obviously have to take the depictions of her with a grain of salt, but since they were being minted, uh, by the Ptolemaic dynasty, they would have probably tried to get her at her best. And so, um, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how, um, she was only later turned into a, uh, real beauty. And of course, there's still a lot of, uh, speculation and confusion as to her lineage and whether or not she was more, um, African or Middle Eastern than Greek, uh, because her, the origin of her mother is still unknown. Um, and so there is that. Um, but Cleopatra is definitely a fascinating person. And I think that it's uh, kind of cool that she was actually known not for her beauty, but for her personality and her intelligence. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so yeah, <laughs> take that unreasonable uh, beauty standards. And so I think that that is very cool. And another very cool thing is this station and uh, all of the great programs that are on it. And again, I think it's so important to have these kinds of outlets where people can access information, access news, access uh, artists and, uh, you know, albums and songs and people that they otherwise wouldn't get to know. Um, farm to fork is really amazing. Bringing people, uh, you know, doing agriculture and, uh, brewing and restaurateurs and all of the people who bring us food and drink, uh, you know, interviewing people, um, civil politics, uh, which is coming up next on the, uh, Airwaves is, uh, you know, trying to help people be able to talk about, uh, current events in a way that is civil and, um, balanced in a way that is not, uh, the sort of fake balance that you often find in, uh, mainstream news. Uh, and there's so many amazing, uh, shows with incredibly diverse kinds of music, K-pop, uh, J-pop, uh, jazz, classics, um, experimental, uh, you know, things that you just wouldn't hear because people just don't play them anymore in other venues. Uh, and so, yeah, the, um, station is just really, uh, a great resource for our community, I think. And so, um, again, if you have the ability, 
valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And um, yeah, every bit helps. We have matching contributions. Every individual uh, donor will get a $10 matching grant and the actual um, money will be uh, matched up to, I believe, $2,500 or $2,000. But anyways, you don't have to worry about that. You just have to worry about going to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and uh, making a small contribution to uh, what I hope is a station that you love and want to keep being able to listen to. All right, let's get back to water. And so for our last story, we are going to talk about China. Researchers from Washington University in St. Louis have recently reported on a practice of irrigation adopted in northern China some 4,000 years ago as part of the adoption of new grains introduced from Southwest Asia. Not only did this new technique show the advanced knowledge of people, it showed how such knowledge can be shared in some ways and not others. You see, both wheat and barley were introduced around this time, but only wheat cultivation led to the introduction of new irrigation techniques, um, or new water uh, usage techniques, I should say, not necessarily irrigation. Published in the journal Antiquity, the new research highlights the fact that the dispersal of these crops and the best practice for growing them were traded independently across time and space. Pioneering farmers who cultivated wheat in this region managed water to meet the high demand of this newly introduced grain, said Xinyi Liu, an associate professor of archaeology in arts and sciences, who collaborated with an international team from several prominent institutions in China and Australia, including Guanghe Dong from Lanzhou University, who led the field expedition on the Los Plateau. The water management may have been achieved either by deliberately watering or by strategic planting in soils with high water retention. But with the barley, they simply grew it in the same way that they grew their millet, the already established staple grain of the region. Now, originally cultivated in the Fertile Crescent, or the Fertile Crescent, wheat and barley were adapted to and cultivated for that climate. It would be sowed in autumn to avoid summer drought and harvested in late spring or early summer. But East Asia has a very different climate. Every summer, the East Asian monsoon brings rains from the Pacific Ocean to a region otherwise arid throughout the rest of the year. This environment is perfect for rain-fed millet cultivation, as these local grains are drought-tolerant but need considerable watering in the summer growing season, Leo said. But it is a different story if you try to grow wheat there not only because it is water demanding, but also the growing cycle doesn't match the rainy season. Now, in order to distinguish if the new crops led to new irrigation or water uh, usage systems, the team used a, a fairly new technique. 
The introduction of a new irrigation system is something that scholars have speculated about, but now we have the technology to seek direct evidence, Leo said. Using stable carbon and nitrogen isotope composition of compositions of charred plant remains, researchers can now query past water and soil conditions during plant growth. Now, this was a technique originally developed for modern agriculture, but has been adapted for archaeological use. Work in this field has already been done in Europe and the Middle East, but this is the first time it was used in East Asia with its monsoon environments. The researchers sampled more than 35,000 charred seeds from various cereals, including wheat, barley, and millet, from more than 50 sites dotted around the Los Plateau of China over a time frame stretching some 8,000 years. The results were clear. Despite the arid local environment, most wheat samples from all time periods showed signs of sufficient water availability. We see this in Qijiai, sorry, in Shijiai cultural period, in the Shijiai cultural period. Sorry, I really wanted to pronounce that properly, and I know that I'm not. Um, and so when wheat and barley were just introduced to this region, Leah said, the isotopic data of wheat shows a significant level of water manipulation unambiguously since 4,000 years ago, indicating the new crop was, was introduced with water management strategies to support it. It's important to note, though, that, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that all places employed actual irrig irrigation techniques. It could also have included strategic sowing of crops in areas with the best water availability, for instance, near local springs or in soils with high water retention. In those locations, small ditches to diffuse water is sufficient, Leo said. This explains why there is no archaeological evidence of channels or other irrigation installations in the area until much later. And again, barley cultivation showed no such interventions, having been folded into the, into the agricultural landscape as equivalent to the already cultivated millet. Central to our inquiry is the tension between non-native crops and indigenous farming practices. When non-native innovations were adopted in another cultural and physical environment, they would have been transformed within the local context. How this happens is an enduring question that is relevant to globalization in the past and present. And so, yeah, very fascinating. And that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, just one more plug for valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Thanks so much. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.